You can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Lord willing, we will finish chapter 19 today. And we will continue working our way into chapter 20 and beyond. Before we begin at this time, I'd ask you if you're able to stand with me. And we will read verses 38 through 42 of John chapter 19 together. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the testimony of Scripture which has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. O oh God, that all things which were necessary and required for Him to accomplish, He has. Lord, I ask that these words, these truths concerning His burial, and all that took place surrounding it, O oh God, I pray that You would affect our souls. Help us to enter into these things, O oh Father, lest we should say that some aspect of Your Word was not important or not significant. Lord, help us to enjoy and enter in and rejoice. Refresh us, we pray. Lord, I ask that You would give me clarity in my mind. Lord, give me a right understanding of these things, and I pray for the power to proclaim them with authority and boldness. O oh God, not for the sake of yelling alone, but do give me strength to say it in a way that's fitting of the occasion. Lord, I ask that You would guard me from misspeaking, protect me from saying untrue things about You. And Lord, I do pray that Your Spirit would quicken us. Those who've been born again, O oh God, compel us to continue putting to death the sin that remains in us. And I pray for new life for those who are lost and yet in their sin. Father, we know that You are mighty and You are able. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you'll recall last week we were looking at verses 31 through 37 and primarily focusing on the immediate aftermath of Jesus' death. We were looking at John's account after Jesus has given up his spirit and died that we see these people in light of the Sabbath and we worked through and considered what their thinking was and breaking the legs of a person being crucified so that they would suffocate so that they would not be able to lift themselves up to breathe. And we saw how they did not break Jesus' legs to fulfill the Scriptures as they normally would. That He as the Passover Lamb would not have a single bone broken. And then in addition to this, we saw 
that they pierced his side and all these things in fulfillment of Scripture and how the indication of the blood and water or liquid was an indication of other Scriptures being fulfilled, of his heart being broken and what he endured for us. Well, today we come to consider his burial after they've taken him down off of the cross. And so we start in verse 38. The title of this particular sermon is A Rich Man's Tomb. A rich man's tomb. And I hope and pray that we will enter in to all that that means. Verse 38, however, starts and says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away the body. Took away his body. So the first thing we ask is, who is this? This is the first time going through John's Gospel that we've heard of this Joseph of Arimathea. And as I understand it, he's not mentioned anywhere else in the Scriptures except in the Gospel accounts. All four Gospels mention him concerning the burial place of Jesus. So who is this Joseph of Arimathea? What do we know about him? Well, first look back with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, and we'll read verses 50 through 53, the same account, but Luke's account. And we find that in verse 50, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. And we look and look back again to Mark's account, Mark chapter 15. In Mark chapter 15 verses 42 through 46, we find this. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought or bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And finally, Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 27, we find this, verses 57 through 60 of Matthew 27. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. So in light of these four gospel accounts, who is this Joseph of Arimathea? We found out in one account, he's a wealthy man. He's referenced as a very wealthy man. In another account, he's a well-respected man, a righteous man, a prominent council member, and yet a fearful follower of Jesus. 
Isn't that interesting? These accounts, particularly John tells us that this Joseph of Arimathea, he was a disciple of Jesus, but only secretly for fear of the Jews. It's an interesting account that we're given here today about the fear of Joseph of Arimathea. You understand following Jesus for this Joseph of Arimathea, doing so publicly would have had certain risks. Don't you understand this Joseph who himself was on the council? Probably, perhaps that's a reference to the Sanhedrin that he would have been kicked out of if he had told them, yeah, fellas, I'm believing in Jesus in light of all they're doing. But at least tells us that within the council, he did not give his consent for Jesus to be crucified and put to death. But there's still this element of trying to hide who he really is, hide what he really believes about Jesus. And it's certainly because of the risk that was associated. And yet what we see that's so encouraging in our text is that though there's a risk involved to what for Joseph to do this very thing, what we see in our text is the Lord continuing to embolden him. Did you notice the one account said that Joseph of Arimathea, he took courage to go and talk to Pilate. I'm sure it took some courage to do that. Here's a man who evidently was truly a Jew by heart. An Israel Israelite with a circumcised heart. Why do we say that? Because all these accounts are telling us that he was one who was actually seeking the kingdom of God when most of them weren't. So he's actually looking for this kingdom of God. And here we find this man, though he's desiring and looking to the kingdom, he's seen Jesus come. He believes in Jesus, and yet he's afraid if he's very open and public about that, it may cost him. And what's encouraging to us is that I believe there are probably a lot of Christians right now who have this exact same thing about them. Many people who have heard about Jesus, they've come to believe in Jesus Christ. They trust He died for their sins, and yet... There's still much fear in them concerning being identified with Jesus publicly. And what's encouraging is that the Lord, when we are ruled by fear, if we are his, he does not leave us in fear and doubt. But he does faithfully bring us along, even as we see here with Joseph. And so before even progressing further in our exposition, I just want to ask you, are you a fearful follower of Jesus? Are you one who does follow Christ? You gather here, obviously you're in a church today worshiping with us. Are you one who, though you trust in Christ, has a heart that's ruled by the fear of man? And I suppose that probably every one of us here, and you could say, brother, you're preaching to the choir today. Look at us here. We even got here through the snow. Look at us. We really are serious about this stuff. Well, some of you, myself, we might say, I'm a Christian. I'm an open Christian. I gather regular for church. People in this town, they know I'm a Christian. They look at me and they think that person loves Jesus. They're very vocal about what they believe. And that may in fact be true. But let me put it to you this way. Your boldness as a Christian is not primarily measured by whether you talk about Jesus when there's no risk involved. Now, we rejoice and praise God if we're in context where we're able to proclaim Jesus' name without any risk. That's a good thing. It's an indication that the gospel has had some impact on the society we live in whenever we're able to freely proclaim Christ. Many of you, the older generations gathered with us today, can remember times in the past where actually if you're not proclaiming Jesus, it could cost you in society. If you are an atheist, you might not get a job if the employer can't trust your character 
I've even been given a job at one time in a secular job because they heard I was a Christian and they thought, well, we can trust this guy with our finances. But the day is coming and is getting here quicker and quicker where being a Christian is not going to be an advantage in society. And certainly in Joseph of Arimathea's day, it was not an advantage to be a Christian. It was very costly. And my point is this. That just because you're not bold as a Christian in your faith doesn't necessarily mean you're not a Christian. But I will say this, that we should not measure our boldness as Christians by whether or not we're speaking about Jesus when there's no risk involved. The fear of man is an awful and it is a crippling thing. We've already seen this in our text in John from Peter, haven't we? Though all else deny you, I'll not. I'll die with you, Lord. And of all things, Peter denying the Lord before a little girl with no threat, no risk. John was already in there. What's he doing? Well, we find out how bold we are whenever there is risk involved. And I'll tell you this, in the world we live in, this is how things are going. If you stand and say, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, that may not cost you much. Joel Osteen says that. Oprah says that. What does it mean to say, I love Jesus? Well... The time is coming whenever those who are considered to be really Christians, like the real Christians, are going to be those who say things about Jesus and about God, but there's no exclusivity to their message. They don't say that any other way but Jesus will take you to hell. And they don't talk about sin, like homosexuality, like child molesting, another thing quick on the docket, like just sleeping around to someone you're not married to. All these things, wickedness, is going to be celebrated and rejoiced in. And those who are truly Christian who stand up and say those things are sin, you must repent. It's going to be said of us, you're not Christian. And my point is, is that we're going to face people and probably even people in this town right now who would rejoice to say, I'm a Christian. But if you start talking about the Christianity of this book, it's not going to win you any favors. and may in fact cost you. There's risk involved. And so here, what I'm suggesting is that it is a very encouraging thing that though we will be tempted by fear, as it seems this Joseph of Arimathea has had a lot of fear. And isn't it interesting that it's after Jesus has died, before he's resurrected, that God encourages him, emboldens him to go and begin living out his faith a little bit. He believed before this, and here he is in the moment of Christ's death, identifying himself as a follower of Jesus before Pilate, the one who oversaw Jesus' execution. And then we see another striking example immediately after that. That's verse 38. And we'll get into some of these elements that are presented here a little bit more as we go, but hang with me for now. Here into verse 39, we see another individual who before this has been a very secret and private follower of Jesus in Nicodemus. Verse 39 says, Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So first we see Joseph of Arimathea coming out and saying, listen, I, I'm going to go on behalf of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. One who had before this time had been secret about it. And here's Nicodemus, who likewise, a member of these councils, just like Joseph and you can almost imagine Joseph and Nicodemus coming together and man he really is the one we heard him speak we know who he is we believed in him what are we supposed to do now 
and the camaraderie you see. Now that's an encouraging point. It's encouraging to see that even though both of these men were before this period very secret in their faith, now when you see them coming together, they're emboldened by one another, surely. How important it is as Christians that whenever we do face opposition and criticism for proclaiming the truth of this book, that we're prepared to stand beside one another, with one another, and embolden one another. I will make this point, you know, you know, Kelly and I were at the Spurgeon Association meeting yesterday, and there was one striking testimony that was shared. Um, a man that's laboring there in Wichita shared how they bought and sent out thousands of gospel tracts in Wichita. I forget the exact number, but several thousand, 30,000 maybe, 30,000 gospel tracts just sent them to people's houses. That's all they did. Well, and he's getting phone calls. People saying things like, I'm coming for you. I'm going to get you. I'm coming to harm you physically. People who know where he lives, sending letters to his house, perhaps going to show up on his doorstep, threaten his life, his family, his church. Other ministers saying, you better quit trying to steal our church members for sending out a gospel tract to people. Not saying anything else. Concerned with souls. That kind of an opposition. And I guarantee you this. Hearing things like that. And being able to gather together as fellow laborers in the gospel. And encourage one another. That's exactly the kind of relationship that's portrayed between Joseph and Nicodemus here. In the midst of discouragement and certain risk. For speaking Jesus name. Here they are encouraged mutually together. In the time of Jesus death. So what do we know about this Nicodemus? Well, we're given a portrayal in our text of the fruit of Jesus Christ's own words and ministry to Nicodemus. You remember we first saw Nicodemus in John 3. He comes to Jesus by night. Why did he come to Jesus by night? Not because he was a follower of Jesus. How do we know that? Because Jesus tells him, you must be born again. You think you're righteous. You're calling me good teacher. Here's what you need to know, Nicodemus. You must be born again. That's something that had to happen. So why does he come by night? Well, he comes by night because he's probably afraid to be seen talking to Jesus. He's hearing some odd things about Jesus, stirring things about the miracles. He comes to find out for himself by night, secretly. And then even when he talks to Jesus and hears what Jesus says... It causes him to stumble. He has a hard time accepting Jesus' words and understanding them. And I would suggest to you that nothing from that original interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus in John's Gospel would lead us to think that this man had been saved. Is there anything in John 3 that makes you think Nicodemus got converted and became a follower of Jesus? Nothing you see there would even begin to cause you to think that that certainly happened. Well then, from that point in John 3, we went on in John 7 to see an indication that when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, there was a work going on in his heart. That he is being led to different conclusions. That he is being changed. How did we see that? Well, back in John chapter 7, verses 50 through 52, we find this from Nicodemus. We haven't heard a thing about Nicodemus since John 3. We don't know what he's been up to, what he's been doing. All we know is Jesus said, you must be born again. You must look to the Son of Man, lift it up, and have eternal life. And then we don't see Nicodemus again. John chapter 7, we find this. They're plotting around Jesus, trying to have him put to death. And it says this, we find that Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, one of these Pharisees, said to them, 
Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So you begin to get an indication here. All the rest of these Pharisees seem to be opposed to Jesus, wanting to kill him. And Nicodemus says, well, aren't we jumping the gun? This isn't biblical. This isn't what the law tells us. And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So here's Nicodemus in John 7. Here, there he goes, and he's immediately opposed and attacked and ridiculed the moment that he calls for a fair trial. And then in our text today, as I mentioned, it's an odd thing that all of a sudden this Nicodemus who was very secretive and kind of unwilling to be open about anything here in our text after Jesus has, has died. Now, now you might think, okay, once Jesus rises from the dead, then Nicodemus is going to come and follow because surely he must be now. Well, isn't it compelling that God was able to move in the heart of Joseph and of Nicodemus while Jesus was yet in the grave? Is there yet dead, about to go to the grave? Isn't it compelling that God moved in them before the supernatural display in the resurrection? Well, he's already died. And so here Nicodemus comes. What a testimony that is of God's power to save. Now, I, I know this firsthand personal experience. It can be very discouraging Whenever we proclaim the gospel, share the truth with people, and we don't see the fruit of conversion. I would say probably in my own experience, I've heard a lot of people and been around people who've made professions of faith. But I can only think of maybe one or two in my entire life that as a direct result of the gospel I proclaimed, saw someone in the moment converted to Christ. Just a couple of times. And even those, I'm assuming some things even saying that. And it can be very discouraging when you're constantly proclaiming the gospel and people are not changed by it. But what's encouraging in this text is that the Lord Jesus Christ himself, we see he planted a seed that grew down the road. It grew and God brought fruit about after the fact. And so we don't know that God might yet be doing a work in someone that we cannot see. Paul reminds us of this whenever they're worshiping their own favorite celebrity preachers in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul tells them this, reminds them that it's not any one man that brings about true conversion. It's not a man who's able to give you life from, from above. 1 Corinthians 3, 5-7, he says this, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. As the Lord assigned to each. So the Lord's making assignments. The Lord's assigning which preachers are going to be used to convert which people. That's an encouraging thing. God does this. It says, the Lord assigned to each. He says, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Here's the point I'm making to you. The Lord Jesus Christ planted a seed with Nicodemus. God watered that. The Spirit of God brought about this very thing that Jesus told Nicodemus had to happen. You must be born again by the wind who blows where he wills. That happened in Nicodemus. My point is that it didn't happen immediately, at least as far as we can see. It was something that God began a work in him. And now we're seeing the fruit of the work that God was doing in him. And so I ask in a lot of these things. What was it? We're looking at Nicodemus. Now he's coming. He's bringing these spices that he's offering. He's offering linen to wrap Jesus in these spices. 
What is it that has changed Nicodemus' mind? Why is he no longer by night sneaking around? He's willing to go before Pilate himself with these things. What has changed? What was the seed which was planted in Nicodemus on that fateful night in John 3? What message did Nicodemus hear that would come to produce this change in his heart and in his mind? Look back with me once again to John chapter 3. And this is going to be extremely relevant as we move towards the end after a bit. John chapter 3. Listen with familiar ears yet again and rejoice to see that Jesus said these things to Nicodemus and there was a fruitful result in it. Verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. What's the seed that Nicodemus heard that brought about this transformation in him? He heard, you must be born again. You must be changed. You must become different. And the striking thing about that, as we've considered before, is that he doesn't look at some person drunk in the gutter and say, you must be born again. He doesn't find the scum of the earth in town. He's getting there. He's going to go to some of those people too. Praise God. But he goes to this man who's come to him, who's the most well-respected and religious person in Israel at the time. And he says, you must be born again. You tell me, I don't care who your celebrity preacher is. The one, if you want to know what the word means, who are you going to listen to? And if you say me, repent and find somebody else. Go to the scriptures and find out what God says. Who would you go to? That person? Go to that person and tell them you must be born again. That's the context that's going on here. Jesus says you must be born again. The seed that's going to bring about conversion. And this is true in those who would criticize and oppose Christianity. And those who would bring their well-ordered arguments and their opinions and their objections. And they say, this can't be. The response they need to hear is that unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what you think is true. You must be born again. If that doesn't happen, all your right conclusions Don't help you at all if you're not changed, if you're not born again. And even as we see with Nicodemus, 
a highly respected religious person who wants to talk about theology and comes saying, well, I know based on my own estimation, you've come from God because of these miracles. He wants to talk theology. Jesus says you must be born again or you will not see the kingdom of God. And so in a very real sense, the seeds that we plant We can talk and argue and discuss and we praise God for good conversations we get. And yet all of that is vain and empty unless a person's born again. That's the only hope that they can possibly have is that they're changed inside. That God would do such a work that their heart, which however religious it may be, is ultimately at enmity with God, is changed. That must happen. Regardless of what they appear to be. And if... We see in the person that we've shared, we've told them, you must be born again. If they say, like Nicodemus says, how is it that a person can be born again? I had someone ask me recently, what does it even mean to be born again? I don't know if I have been. What a beautiful question. What are we to say? Ultimately, Jesus says this work of being born again is something the spirit of God does that you cannot manipulate. You cannot force. God must do it. The wind's going to blow where he will. But the message he's pleased to accompany in that blowing work is this one. He says in verses 14 and 15 to Nicodemus, who's asked, what does it look like? How am I going to be born again? He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him have eternal life. And so we tell people in this town, in our own families, in this community, we say, In our own church, even the children here, you must be born again. God must change you. You say, how does that happen? Look to Jesus, the son of man lifted up on the cross and be changed and converted by looking to him. This is the transforming message. And so I ask us today, have we been born again? Have you been transformed and taken and changed from a criticizing, arrogant, sinful opponent of God? even with religious tendencies, and been made a humbly submitted follower of Jesus, willing to go in front of even Pilate requesting his body. That's the power of God. And we can be encouraged that regardless of what fruit we see on the surface, if this is the seed we're planting, God is able to make an increase of change and completely regenerate a person. The seed must be Christ and him crucified, though. Verse 40, we press along and we see this. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So here's what I said. We're going to come to consider a little bit further what it means that these two people who were secret followers of Jesus, who are coming forward, being emboldened and excited. What does it look like and what exactly are they doing and what's the purpose of these things? I don't believe the primary thing we see in our text is the encouragement and emboldening of these two guys. Certainly that's true, but this is historical fact. This is detail. John gives us these details so we would know some things about Jesus. John's message is not primarily about Joseph of Arimathea or of Nicodemus. It's about Jesus. And so what do these things have to do with Jesus? Why are we being told these things? Well, verse 40, here they've taken the body of Jesus Bounded in these linen cloths and with the spices as the burial custom of the Jews. First thing we need to consider is this. This verse 40 is repeating to us a very clear reality that we've already been looking at again and again and again, but it's so vital. 
is that Jesus was in fact dead. Now, as you sit here this morning, you might think that's what's the big deal? Okay, we've heard again, Jesus is dead. What's the big deal? We need to understand in this day, there were some very focused attempts to try to deny that Jesus actually died. Have you ever heard of what's called the swoon theory? The idea that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He looked dead. He was close to death, but they took him down. He was still alive. And so they put him in the tomb and there was moisture in the air. And somehow his body got kind of revitalized and he came back. But he never actually died. So therefore, he didn't rise from the dead. Well, that was a rumor and lie that was going around by the Gnostics in Jesus' day after his resurrection in the early church. Something that was constantly being fought against. And it persists today. There are even atheists today that will try to say that Jesus didn't actually die. My encouragement to you is if someone has that argument, what would you say if someone came to you as an atheist and said, well, I don't really believe Jesus died. He must have just recovered somehow in the tomb. What would you say? Well, I'm going to convince you that Jesus really lived and died. I would encourage you to maybe say this. You must be born again. Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And me convincing you that your theories, which by the way only exist as an excuse not to be submitted to God, are exactly that, an excuse. And that you must be born again. But for our sake and our purposes, we see that there was this clarification that Jesus actually really was dead. Well... What else do we see in light of this? Why is, how, how do we know that by this text? How does that help us to understand it? Well, for one, we're told they took the body of Jesus. And so we know in light of this text, the Scriptures tell us He really died. But then in addition to that, we are told that they take His dead body and bind it with linen cloths and they treat it with these spices. Now, there are, really are two primary purposes for these spices. And it could have been one or the other. There's kind of there's perfume that's used for anointing an anointing perfume. But there's also there's bitter herbs that are used for preservation. And actually, it was an early form of, of what we would do today in embalming. It would preserve the flesh a little bit, keep it intact somewhat, keep the rotting from all taking place at once and making as big a stink. Here's the idea. You can put all the spices you want on a rotting corpse. But if it's a big pile of rotting corpse, it's going to stink. But if the corpse is, if the rotting process and breaking down is slowed down through these preserving spices, then those other spices can do a better job at shielding, shielding the smell. So this would have been the idea. Well, here's the point. They had this pattern, this custom the Jews did for that very reason to preserve the flesh and as well the embalming, but then also in order that the smell would be prevented. You remember what they said of Lazarus, Lazarus, don't you? They come to the tomb and Jesus says, take the, take the stone away. They say, Lord, he stinks by now. We don't want to open that tomb up and get the stink. Well, here again, an indication Jesus was in fact dead and they would have expected him to begin stinking from his rotting corpse if they didn't have these spices. So those are the purposes were given. And these linen cloths and spices, we know this side of the resurrection were unnecessary, right? Jesus, his flesh didn't see corruption. He rose three days later. We know he wasn't staying in that tomb. But what it indicates to us that they applied these things, the use of them indicates the certainty of his death, that he really was dead. If he wasn't dead, they wouldn't have gone through. You've got to understand 
For one, this tomb that Joseph of Arimathea offers up was not an inexpensive thing. There's a reason that we heard he was a rich man. This was an expensive tomb that he offers. And we'll consider that again. A rich man's tomb, the title of the message. But also, this amount, this 75 pounds of spices, 75 pounds of spices today would not be cheap. And in this day, this was a very expensive amount of stuff to bring. They wouldn't have wasted it if they didn't really think this man's dead. So all of these things just in the historical context of what actually happened in these verses. And then we find on in verse 41 this. The place, now the, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, as I mentioned, as we read in Matthew's account, this tomb that he's put in here belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. You might not get that, but in Matthew's account, and matter of fact, in Luke's as well, you find out that this tomb, actually, Joseph of Arimathea thought, I'm going to carve myself out a tomb. Kind of like an early insurance policy. I'm going to buy my insurance or my gravesite now so that my family doesn't have to worry about it when I die. Joseph made this tomb for himself. I saw someone recently, it might have been on social media, someone who was imagining why Joseph of Arimathea would be willing to give his tomb up and him looking at them and saying, well, it's only temporary. I'm going to get it back. But I'm not sure that Joseph actually fully understood what was going on here. Either way, here's the point. This tomb belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. He'd prepared it for himself. One interesting thing Matthew Henry suggested was this. Any of you ever had a garden at your house or grown any vegetables? Even as a farmer, would you imagine that you would put your tomb right in the middle of a garden at your house or something like that? Doesn't that seem a little bit odd? Well, I'm not sure how common a thing this was in this context, but Matthew Henry suggests that there's this picture given to us that Joseph having his own tomb being in the garden here would be as he's laboring to preserve his life, a constant reminder that it was going to end someday. And how fitting or how, how realistic that was or if that was the intention or not, I do believe that it would serve us all well to remember often and to consider our own death. The, the tomb, the, the tomb existing there in the garden, the place of gathering, that we also, not that we would wallow in it, the idea of death, but in order that we would be constantly ordering our lives, the labors that we, we do, doing them in light of eternity. So reminded in thinking on that just to quickly, you can listen from, Matt, from Hebrews chapter 11 from the text I preached recently in Missouri. Verses 13 through 16, here describing this plot, this death, this tomb that belonged to Joseph, we find this, speaking of those in the Old Testament who were looking to Christ, trusting Him, seeing Him from afar, we find this, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now let me be clear, you could hear me saying to you, and you might hear this towards the end, so I want to give a clarification. I'm not saying, look here's Nicodemus wasting all this money on all these spices, and you should be prepared to just give everything you have with no concern about planning for the future or being financially responsible. 
Maybe that's what God's calling you to do, but not necessarily. Here's my point is that here's pictured in this garden. A garden is a place of commerce, a place of increase, of growing, whether vegetables or some kind of a crop, some place to enjoy, something that you keep up with. As a matter of fact, we're going to read later on. This must have been a really nicely cultivated garden. You know why I say that? Because Mary mistakes Jesus for the gardener later on. She assumed this place is so nice, this must be the gardener here. Something's going on there. Here's my point. That no matter what your labors are, whether it's financial stability or success or investment or trying to do any pursuit in this life to constantly have your own grave set before you, realizing no matter how much you do, no matter how much you acquire, no matter how successful you are, there's a death at the end of it. All of that from just Matthew Henry's suggestion about this text. But regardless of that, we do also find in Matthew's account a description of this particular tomb. He tells us that Joseph had carved this tomb out of the side of a rock or a great boulder. And what this would have meant is that there are no possible exits from within this tomb. There's no way out. The walls inside are solid rock and the only way in or out was through the entrance, which we're told is completely covered by a giant stone door. When we move into verse 41 again, we consider the place where he was crucified. There was a garden and the garden, a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid. The last thing in this verse to consider is that it was a pure tomb. It was pure. No one had yet been laid here. It was carved out for Joseph. Joseph is still alive. No one's been put in this tomb yet. And Matthew Henry again points this out to us, that Jesus, the one who had been born of a virgin mother, is here laid in a virgin tomb. And that there was no defilement of man's sin in Jesus' supernatural birth. God, the Spirit, came upon Mary and she would conceived and then had Jesus. He had no physical earthly father. And here, the one born of a virgin, there was no corruption of sin in his burial. No corruption of man's sin in his conception. No corruption of sin in his burial. We see in verse 42... Find what it says that so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So as we look at verse 42, the final verse in John chapter 19, I believe it ought to compel us to think once again on the sovereignty of God in and amongst and through the decisions of men. Think on it this way. We're given in this verse. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. If the only verse you knew in the whole Bible is this one, you would think, okay, if you want to know the explanation for why Jesus was in this tomb, this particular tomb was because, well, the Sabbath's coming. We need somewhere close to put him. Here's an option. Here we go. Just opportunity. It was a good opportunity, so that's why I ended up there. On a human level, it seems that it's nothing more than a matter of convenience. This tomb happened to be close at hand. It just happened to be right before the Sabbath. And there were these were the reasons that were given from a human perspective, according to human reasoning, as to why Jesus' body was put in this tomb. And yet, God has a greater purpose in mind. What is it? You remember from Isaiah 53, 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Was it possible that Jesus not be buried in a rich man's grave? 
Not according to Isaiah 53. God's purpose, his death, his, his grave with the wicked. He died beside wicked criminals and then he was buried in a rich man's grave. How can Isaiah say that with certainty? Because God is working out all of the purposes of his counsel perfectly, precisely. And that doesn't mean that men and women are not making choices along the way. In the people's minds, here's a grave. Joseph of Arimathea, we're going to put Jesus. I've got this grave. It's close by where he was crucified. It makes sense. You see, in those days, they wouldn't travel very far around the Sabbath. There's an expression, a Sabbath day journey. You couldn't be farther away than you could traverse between the Sabbath. So here's the point. Man's mind says it's convenient. God has a purpose in it. You see, the certainty that Jesus would be buried in this rich man's tomb was not left up to the fickle minds of men. It was not a coincidence. It was absolutely certain and sure that Jesus would be in this tomb, this specific tomb, because God had said that he would be. So yet again, we're reminded of God's faithfulness to keep his word. If he said it, he will do it. And see, we continue to see again and again the scriptures being fulfilled in the life and in the death and even after the death of Jesus. It's amazing for all of these scriptures to be fulfilled in one person is almost astronomically impossible that the entire messianic scriptures prophesying Jesus, all of them to be fulfilled in him. And yet we continue to see one after another, after another, Jesus filling all of these things. But I want to ask something. So we've got this clear. There's nobody in here that's going to leave thinking, well, it was kind of a cosmic coincidence that Jesus ended up in this tomb. Not possible. He was going to a rich man's tomb. Well, let's ask, why? Why was it that Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb? Was there any significance in this other than the fulfillment of Scripture? And I'm not saying the fulfillment of Scripture is insignificant. Obviously, it's significant. But you know, God is often pleased to fulfill the Scriptures in such a way to continue instructing and informing and illustrating for us what his truth is. So yes, he's buried in a rich man's tomb, but what for? What's the purpose? Fulfill scripture. Okay, why did God prophesy it would happen that way? If you want to put it that way, it's fulfilling scripture. Well, why did God say it would be that way? Sometimes we don't know, but in this instance, I think we can get just a little bit of insight into why Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. It pictures for us the reality that Jesus' inheritance was obtained through His death. Think about this. In most instances, when does a person expect to get an inheritance? When someone else dies. Someone else has some money or some land or something that belongs to them. When they die, somebody else gets their stuff. In Jesus' case, He receives this reward, this inheritance as a result of His own death. He dies and is put in a rich man's tomb. And maybe you say I'm spiritualizing or going too far. Consider this. In this case, Jesus is receiving the reward His Father has promised Him. And it's pictured for us in the idea of a wealthy man's tomb. How can I say that? What, ground, what grounds do I have to say that biblically? Well, first, consider again from Isaiah 53. We all ought to know by now Isaiah 53 is a clear indication to us of Jesus suffering death in our place as our substitute. Well, consider this again. Isaiah 53, his death with a rich man. What does that have to do with his inheritance? Him gaining something? Think on it this way. 
Start again with me in verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. At the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That's all his death taking place. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many. What's that about? Somebody dies. How do they get a portion divided to them? That's a reward. That's an inheritance. That's how shall divide the spoil with the strong. There's spoils of war. There's an increase. There's an inheritance obtained. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore up the sins of many and makes intercession for transgressors. What point am I making? That Jesus obtained a reward, an inheritance. A wealth was distributed to him as a result of his death. As soon as he's died, all of a sudden he's in a rich man's tomb. He's placed in a place of honor, of wealth. Of having received something. And I'll argue even further. Look with me at Psalm number 16. Often considered scripture. Consider this afresh. In light of what I'm telling you here. Jesus was put in the tomb of a rich man. Indicating the wealth he had received. As a result of his own sacrifice. That which was guaranteed him. By the father. Think on these things. Psalm 16, yet again, another scripture, which Jesus himself, which is quoted and directed and applied to Jesus throughout the New Testament. Think on this. Jesus says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Now, listen, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or you will or let your holy one see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, if you were to read that scripture, that psalm, would you immediately assume this is a description of an inheritance that's demonstrated and being buried in a rich man's tomb? Probably not. But when you find out the context, you'll not let your holy one see corruption. It's applied to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And in this context, there's this cry that says the lines have fallen in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance in the context of dying. And then being restored, being preserved, not seeing corruption, not being abandoned to shield. What am I saying to you? That the reward, the inheritance which Jesus received from his father (coughs) was the purchased possession of his people whom he died for. The riches of Christ that are given to him by the father even indicated to us briefly in a moment in being laid in a rich man's tomb. 
And though his death was gruesome and certain, the reward for his suffering would not be denied. And it can even be illustrated for us in this. that He was buried in a rich man's tomb. Now, here's what I'll tell you. Can I tell you with authority that the reason Jesus was placed in a rich man's tomb was to tell us that the father is going to give him an inheritance of people according to the death he died? Well, I can't tell you with authority those things are together that way, but I can tell you this, they're both true. And I don't really believe in coincidences when it comes to the word of God, God unfolding these things for us to be encouraged by. And so as we move towards the final application I'd like to make in light of these things today, I want to ask this. How does this affect us? What does the burial of Jesus Christ have to do with you and I? I mean, I mentioned this, I think, last week, but let me just reiterate quickly 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul gives us the most clear and concise description of the gospel. If someone says they believe the gospel and it doesn't include this, there's a problem. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand. So he's about to remind them of the gospel. He says, And by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Okay, the next verses here. Here's the gospel. For I, believe, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. What's the Gospel? Jesus Christ crucified. Obviously, clearly, concisely in 1 Corinthians 2. But also, Christ buried. That He died for our sins according to the Scriptures, he was buried and rose according to the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, we know that Jesus on one occasion says the only sign you're going to get of Messiah is the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. He was buried. He was in the belly of the fish. For how long? Three days. There He is. The burial of Christ. He's put away. What does that impact us? What does that have to do with you and I? His burial. Look with me, if you would, at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We find this, beginning in verse 1. Christ was buried. He was put in the tomb. What about us? Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. May it never be. Perish the thought. Those are three synonyms for that expression. By no means. Kill that thought. Don't let that thought live. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Have you died to sin? What's Jesus burial about? The body of sin has been put to death. He who took our sin in his own body and then died and then that body was buried and then he rose from the dead. And here's the picture. We are called to die and to have the old man buried. This is the language of the scripture. I ask, has the person that you used to be before Christ, that cowardly person who was who was afraid to stand for Jesus, the one who loved you more than anything, has that person died? As Jesus said to Nicodemus, have you been born again? Have you been born again? Means you've got to die in order to be born again. You must die to sin. You must die to self, the passions of the flesh. And yes, you must even die to self-righteousness. You've got to die to every form of stinking pride and bury the corpse of it in the ground. Paul's testimony of himself. He says this in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What's burial about? If you're a Christian, you're one who recognizes that Jesus died for me. And he, bur- he was buried for me. And I was buried like unto his burial. And when we're baptized, that's what we're saying. That I've died to sin. It's been buried, put to death in me. The old man's gone. And I've been given life anew. And the only way to life and true and eternal inheritance is only through death. Did Jesus not say this in Luke 17, 33? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will keep it. Whoever loses his life is going to keep it, but the one who tries to hold on to and relinquish their demand to be God of their own life, that person is going to die and they're going to go to hell. The person who says, I'm not in charge, I'm dead, Christ is the only hope I have, there's a burial, that person gets put to death. So have you died? Lost your life? And found life eternal in Christ? And my question is, if so, Christian here, How then shall you live? Yes, it's true. When we're converted, the old man dies. We're given new life. That person's put in the grave. They're buried. What about then? Is that the only death we experience as Christians? Well, Paul says in Philippians 1, 19 through 21, in a lot of these things, in a lot of the language of death being spoken about us and the death of Christ and the life of Christ, I find it compelling In Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, we find this. Paul says, 
For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The one who has died and been buried in Christ is the one who's been freed. You, you no longer primarily committed to preserving your life. I have died with Him. Now I'm living for Him. And now it doesn't matter whether I live or die. It's for Him. Everything's for Him. And so the call upon the Christian is not to die once. Just only in your conversion. But that you would be daily, moment by moment, crucifying, mortifying, killing the flesh and seeking to bury it. Luke 9.23, Jesus said, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. And I believe what happens in the lives of so many Christians is we think crucifying the flesh means I've got a sin issue, I need to repent of it, and then that thing is left dangling on the cross we've crucified it on. That thing's still alive and it's still up there and then it rears its ugly head later because it's never been buried. We don't see it as having been killed in Christ and buried with Him. We keep it with us. And so my encouragement to you in a lot of these things is this. Jesus was laid in a rich man's tomb and He has guaranteed the inheritance, the people for whom He died. The Father is not going to withhold one from Jesus for whom He shed His blood. They will all be granted and brought unto Him, drawn by the Father. Everyone will. And we're even getting to rejoice in the snapshot of that in this rich man's tomb. But as we're going on next week, Lord willing to see, that was just a picture. He was really dead in that tomb, but he wasn't staying there. He would be raised, and we who are trusting in him, as we're going on to see, are promised that though we die, yet we will be raised. As a matter of fact, here's the point you must be born again. That means that though that you must die, you must be killed, you're dead in sin, and you must die to sin. But there is a resurrection, a spiritual resurrection. You're raised from that dead estate in sin and given a desire with that new heart, that born again, you're changed into a lover of God. And I pray that if that has not happened for you, that you would repent and believe on Jesus Christ. I say to you, whatever the argument, whatever the reason you have for telling me, no right now, Jesus said you must be born again or you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I say to you, you must be born again. And once again, if you ask, what does that mean? How does that happen? Jesus said, as the serpent was lifted up on the bronze standard in Moses' day, that all who look upon the Son of Man lifted up on the cross, crucified for sinners, all who look upon Him and believe, I have eternal life. If you're a Christian, I pray that motivates and encourages you to die, to bury your sin and follow after Christ in repentance and faith. So that will ask you to bow with me and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for Your Word. Father, I pray that anything true and right and according to Your Word that has been said will stay with us in our hearts. Lord, anything that of the flesh, anything in me, anything that's distracting, anything that's wrong, that we would quickly forget and would not be bound by in any way. Oh, Father, I just pray that 
you would bless our remaining time together as we sing one more song and fellowship together. Lord, I pray that you would encourage and motivate us in the week ahead to be faithful and fearless witnesses for you, bold to those with whom we interact. And I pray you would do this work in us by your spirit. In Jesus name. Amen.